0: Welcome back to Our Foundations, my name is Joshua and today we have another episode on money. This episode will be on the more modern history of money. So last time when we had a money episode, we went from what money looked like and how it evolved from ancient times up to kind of into the 20th century. And so now we're going to pick up there and see What are more modern ideas of money and banking are, what our current systems are, and how they came to be? So we're going to look at some debates that are going on over money and banking in this time period, and then we're going to move right into the Federal Reserve, and that is going to be the main focus of this episode. So we are going to talk about how that was formed, what the ideas were, how it works, how the current banking system works under the Federal Reserve System, and so on and so forth, and take us all the way up to our current time period. So that's the plan. The focus is mainly on the American system. However, most of these concepts are being used around the world. Most modern countries have a central bank And a similar banking system with fractional reserve banking and fiat money and these types of things. So let's go ahead and get started. I'll begin with a quote. This one is from Henry Ford. He said, It is well enough that people of the nation do not understand our banking and monetary system, for if they did, I believe there would be a revolution before morning. So the first debate I wanted to mention is that of a central bank versus a decentralized banking model. So typically now we have central banking systems around the world, and that's how it works, where you have one central bank usually ran by the local government, and it controls all monetary policy and things of that nature. However, the other idea that was more prevalent in the 1700s, 1800s, although still wasn't the main form that was used at the time even, it was at least debated, which now is not really so much the case, but that is the decentralized model, where you have a banking system, and the banks operate as independent businesses, and they are outside of the government and state control, so you have many different banks all around the country, they have their own currencies if they want, or they all unify and use a common currency, and they print it as they see fit, they hold reserves to back up the money that they issue. And if there's a run on the bank, then the bank goes out of business and it is no longer there. And that's how the decentralized model works. you have all these other banks. They're all ran as businesses. It is outside of government control, and it's basically ran by market forces. So these are two opposite systems, and central banking has one out. That's what we have now. The next debate is that of hard money versus fiat. So again, hard money was one of the most common forms of money coming into the 1700s, the 1800s, even into the 1900s, although by then it mostly had been faded out. But what hard money is, it is money that is backed up by a tangible physical resource and that is typically gold or silver hard money can also be a money itself so a coin that is in and of itself gold or silver or another precious metal and that's usually the form that it has taken at least Um, conceptually it could be other things but typically that's how it is it's either a money and a currency that is backed up by say gold or silver or a money or currency so like a coin that is made up out of gold or silver so you have a gold coin that you're using for currency and it has 0.2 ounces of gold in it and so it is worth what it is because it is made up of gold itself so that's the hard money idea the fiat money concept is that Basically, it really doesn't matter if the money's backed up by anything. What's the point? Because we don't really care. So typically, especially in modern times, um, well, modern times, it's all digital, but modern times in the time period we're talking about, the early 1900s, in this time period, many countries and many people are using paper currencies, and with these paper currencies, they typically begin as a currency that is backed up by gold or silver that could be redeemed for gold or silver, but realistically as people use it and it circulates within a country, people don't actually go to the bank and exchange it for gold and silver. Now, I'm sure some people did, and some people did. And there were businesses that would check up on the banks, in a sense, by redeeming large amounts. Governments would do this very often, where they would randomly show up at a bank and redeem large amounts of the currency just to make sure that the bank had the reserves they said they had. And so sometimes people would redeem, but... Most of the time, people are just passing the currency back and forth, they're buying things, businesses are paying their employees, whatever, and really, why do you need gold and silver? Why does it have to be backed up by anything? Now, the obvious reason why it has to be backed up is because there does have to be some sort of checks and balance system or some sort of limit on creating money you can't just have banks that are printing off as much money as they feel like because then money becomes worthless so when you take the previous debate we talked about about central banking and central banking started to win out so governments are control of monetary policy and you apply that to the theory of fiat money then you do have a limit and A structure that the money system lies within. So the government does control how much money is printed. They do control how that is distributed. They do control all these types of things. And so that is your checks and balance system. That is your limit on the printing of money and that sort of thing. And so that's the idea. And typically, you do want the government to hold maybe a minor reserve of gold and silver maybe 10 percent 20 percent of your money supply so you do have something on hand but you don't really need much because you know what's the point and that's kind of the mentality behind fiat money and as you probably know fiat money won out and that's pretty much what we have now we'll talk about inflation a little bit later on in the episode, but I want to give two more quotes here that do have something to do with the hard money versus fiat debate, and the implications of that is inflation. Starting off from Alan Greenspan, he said, In the absence of the gold standard, there is no way to protect savings from confiscation through inflation. Deficit spending is simply a scheme for the hidden confiscation of wealth gold stands in the way of this insidious process. It stands as a protector of property rights. The other quote is from Adam Smith. The problem with fiat money is that it rewards the minority that can handle money, but fools the generation that has worked and saved money. So the next debate is one that's not as meaningful after this point because it is that of gold versus silver versus bimetal systems. So, when America was first founded and we started using our own coins, we established a bimetal currency system where gold and silver were both used as legal tender, and that was in the Constitution. And there were set exchange rates between gold and silver. Now, this was good from the standpoint that people could use either metal and hold either metal and spend either metal. That makes a lot of sense. There were a lot of other foreign currencies. Some were in silver, like Mexico, for example, and some were in gold, like most of the European countries at the time. And so these currencies did circulate within the colonies and continued after that. And so the issue that came up was the fact that we did have set exchange rates. And so when the government sets a fixed rate of exchange between gold and silver, for example, then the prices on the market start to deviate from that set exchange rate. Well, people make a profit and they will do so. So... If, say, you have one ounce of gold is equal to two ounces of silver, and that's the going exchange rate that the government says, and they will always exchange it for that. Two ounces of silver for one ounce of gold. Well, what happens is let's say that gold starts to go down in value on the world markets and silver starts to rise in value so it's more of a one-to-one relationship now so one ounce of gold can be exchanged for one ounce of silver on the open market well what happens is people would then go to the open market they would buy lots of gold at the rate of one ounce to one ounce of silver Then they would take all this gold, they'd come to America, and they would exchange that gold for silver, because in America, the government said that they will exchange one ounce of gold for two ounces of silver. So basically, you just doubled your money, and then you take those two ounces of silver for every single ounce of gold that you had brought to America and exchanged in, and then you take all that new silver, you go back to the open markets, and you can exchange it back into gold, and you just doubled your money. And you could do that again and again. And so you can see how it doesn't really work out very well to have these set exchange rates. Now, this typically didn't play out in this extreme of an example. But still, if you're making a 10% profit, a 20% profit, this becomes an arbitrage opportunity. And people did take advantage and still do take advantage when these types of things arise in a market. And so the bimetal idea... Theoretically, it could work very well if you had a set exchange rate that was fixed by the market, but when you have a specific rate that's set by the government, that typically doesn't work because of the example I just laid out. So you did have this debate that still did exist, though, between gold and silver, and America did try the bimetal concept for a long time and we kept trying kept trying and it just you know didn't work out but uh, there were many countries that were using silver up until the 1900s and many countries most of the more modern countries and advanced countries were on the gold system and most of the less advanced countries were on the silver system but that was not universal Um, some were opposites and such so People did, though, typically use either gold or silver or both, and that was it. So by this time period, people were not using other metals or other commodities or anything like that. It was gold or silver or both, and that's about it. Now, the last debate we'll mention comes from the same idea, that of using metals for money, and that is, what do you use as your reserve? And how does that work out? So you have the concept of the gold standard. Now, this became the most common system that governments were using and countries were using at the time. And that is that of the gold standard, where basically your currency and your money was backed up by gold to some degree. It typically was not a 100% backing. Uh, that Those days were long gone. But you did have a significant amount of gold that was held on reserve to back up the money that was being printed and circulated and used in the economy. And so you have some different concepts here. So you've got this aspect of having a gold reserve that is held to back up your currency. You also have a gold standard that would be used where the actual precious metals were used as currency. So this still did exist coming into the 1900s in many different places, even in Europe and America as well, where coins were being minted that actually did have gold in them, and they did have silver in them. And those coins were being used as currency on the market and in the ecosystem in the countries. And so... This is another kind of gold standard or metal standard, at least, that was being used. So the next question becomes, how do you actually redeem your currency for this gold or silver that is backing it up? Well, typically, the way this works is that a government would guarantee and banks would guarantee the right to redeem your paper money for gold or silver. And so you could go to the bank, you could give them $100 bills in exchange, they would give you a certain amount of gold, whether it be bars or coins or whatever, or silver if you so demanded. And that is one way to do it. Now, on a large scale, countries ended up getting a little more creative, we'll say. And this is the gold exchange standard. Now, the way this works is that the majority of the countries in a world market would hold reserves in one specific country's currency. So let's use the good example here of the American dollar, the U.S. dollar. So what would happen would be most of the world would hold their reserves in U.S. dollars. So for every British pound that was minted, That was backed up by the equivalent amount of U.S. dollars. And the same would be true in China, in Russia, all over the world. And so all these countries would back up their currencies, not with gold, not with silver, not with any other commodity or precious metal, but with U.S. dollars. Now, how this is called the gold exchange standard is that these U.S. dollars in America would actually be backed up by gold. So the U.S. dollar would be redeemable in gold, and it would then back up all these other currencies. So in a roundabout way, the British pound is backed up by gold because they have U.S. dollars in reserve, and those U.S. dollars could theoretically be exchanged for gold. And so you have this quasi-gold exchange standard that's called the gold exchange standard, but it's not exactly... Eh, it doesn't work out the way you would think, but, but at least you do have some gold backing up your money, even though it's through a longer chain, at least it does exist. And so those are the main debates that were going on um, in different countries around this time period. You ended up having central banks winning out, fiat money winning out. Uh, The gold exchange standard is actually the one that did win out. There is one more concept I will mention here, and that is that of fractional reserve banking. I'll insert a quote here from John Maynard Keynes, where he says, By this means, fractional reserve banking, government may secretly and unobserved confiscate the wealth of the people, and not one man in a million will detect a theft. So let me give a very basic example and an early example to kind of show how this works out. Let's go to a warehouse that stores goods for importers and exporters. And let's say this warehouse is storing TVs. So you have a warehouse that stores TVs. Now Samsung may come to this warehouse and say, hey, I need to store 100 TVs in your warehouse. And so the warehouse company says, "Okay, you can store those TVs here. Now, what the warehouse will do will then give a receipt to Samsung saying that they have 100 TVs that are in storage. And if Samsung, when they're ready to get these TVs out of storage, they hand the receipt back to the warehouse company and the warehouse company gives them the TVs. It's you know, pretty simple business. So this is the way it works. And what ends up happening is that. Samsung decides that you know they are going to be selling these TVs to Walmart. And instead of actually going to the warehouse, giving them the receipt, getting the TVs, then driving them to Walmart and dropping them off and exchanging there, it's just a lot easier if they just give the receipt to Walmart. So they take their receipt for 100 TVs. They pass it over to an executive at Walmart and sell them basically the TVs, or the receipt for the TVs at least, then the Walmart executive can send someone over with the receipt, pick up the TVs, and they belong to Walmart. And again, this makes sense, pretty simple. What ends up happening is Samsung starts trading with receipts instead of the physical TVs themselves. And so Samsung is selling a TV to an individual Instead of actually, again, going through the whole process of getting the TV and giving it to the individual, they can just give the individual a receipt for one TV, and the individual goes to the warehouse and gets their TV. And it's a lot easier. They just sell them a piece of paper, pretty much. It's a much more streamlined process. Now, take that example and that system and this business, this warehouse storage business, and what if the warehouse company decided to take, let's say, 90 of the 100 TVs and sell them to whoever they want to, sell them to their own customers. And so what they could do is they already have 100 TVs from Samsung in their warehouse, and they know that Samsung's not selling them very quickly, and they're just selling them one at a time anyway. So why not just go ahead and sell some of these TVs that they have in stock and make some money. So they do that. The warehouse company starts selling these TVs to other individuals. I would guess that you would think of this as being some sort of fraud, and rightfully so. There is another way that the warehouse company could make some extra money here, and that would be to sell customers receipts for TVs without actually having all the TVs in stock. So... Let's say that they have 100 TVs in stock and they start selling receipts for people to pick up TVs, but they know that a lot of these people are investing in the TV market. So for whatever reason, it's a made up example, and I don't feel like changing it to something that makes a little more sense. But let's say that for whatever reason, these Samsung TVs are appreciating in value. They're getting more and more valuable as they sit. It's like a classic car or like a bar of gold. And so people are starting to invest in these TVs. So people are buying these receipts for TVs, but they don't actually want to use the TV. They just want to invest and then they're going to sell the TV later at a higher price. The warehouse company sees this and sees that people are investing. And so they know that people aren't going to come get all these TVs. So what they do is they take the receipts, 100 receipts for the 100 TVs they have, and they sell these receipts. Well, then they decide, let's just create 100 more receipts. Even though we don't have any more TVs, uh, it doesn't matter. People aren't going to come pick them up anyway. They're just investing. So let's just print off 100 more receipts and we'll make some extra money. So they do that. They print off 200 receipts in total and only have 100 TVs. Now, again, I'm sure you look at this and say, well, that's fraud. That's not right. And you are correct. However, this is a good primer for fractional reserve banking, because that's exactly what happens. What happens is you have a bank, and they take people's money to store. So I take my $100, and I put it in a checking account at my bank. Now, my bank then takes that $100, and instead of actually storing it for me and holding it for me, what they do is they keep $10. And they actually keep that at the bank. And then they take $90 and they give that to other people that are looking for money. So people that are getting loans. And it doesn't end there. So this $90 that the bank loaned out to other people... Those people now have this $90. So let's say one person has $10, another person has $10, another person has $20, and so on. People have that $90 in aggregate. Now, what they do is some of them will be buying things and some will be putting it into savings or waiting to buy something, you know, whatever the case may be. Somehow, most of this money ends up going back into a bank, whether they buy say a car from somebody and the person who sold the car would then take their money and put that money in the bank or someone gets a loan and they're going to buy something in two months and so they put it in the bank until they're ready to buy it you know whatever the case may be the money ends up going back into the banking system and when this 90 dollars goes back into the banking system well guess what you have the same thing happen all over again where only $9 of that $90 is stored in the bank, and the bank reloans out the extra $81. And this happens again and again and again. And so out of my original $100 that was, we'll call it real money, now there is maybe a $1,000 that is floating around throughout the market and throughout the economy that was created, in a sense, out of my $100. Now, that $1,000 in the market does not have anything that it is tied to. It's not backed by anything. There is not actually a $1,000 in the different banks. There's $100. That's all I put in, and that's all that originally existed. And So you end up with money that multiplies and spreads and gets bigger, and it's not actually backed by anything. So we already talked about fiat money, how it's not backed by gold or silver, but in fractional reserve banking, the money is not even backed by the money itself. So it's not like you just printed off these random pieces of paper that are supposed to mean something. Um, and then you use it to buy and sell stuff, and that's it. No, you print off these pieces of paper that you use to buy and sell things, and then you end up printing 10 times as much paper randomly as it goes through the banking system. And that's fractional reserve banking. So that's the other thing that won out in this time period, and now that's what we have. So, yeah. Moving on. Let's go ahead and get into the Federal Reserve. So this is a very interesting topic, and I hope you will find it as interesting as I do. Interesting, not necessarily in a good way, but in a, like, it's so horrible, how can this be true kind of a way. So let's go on. To begin with, let's set the stage here. You had the Civil War in America, and obviously that was very expensive, So in order to pay for the war, the Union ended up passing a set of national banking acts that created a central bank of sorts, a national bank for America. And they ended up printing off a lot of bonds and treasury bills and got a bunch of money this way and basically went into a bunch of debt, printed lots of currency that wasn't really backed up by any hard money. And kind of that's how they did things. They owed a lot of money. It was a costly war, and they had to do something. So that's what they did. Now, a few years later, um, moving into 1907, you ended up having the panic of 1907. And when this happened, there was a huge run on the banks, and it was this major crisis. Everything was crashing. And people got really freaked out, obviously. So of course, when there was a run on the banks, Like we talked about fractional reserve banking, the money wasn't there. So maybe the first 10% of people got their money out and the rest were stuck with nothing. And what happened is JP Morgan actually stepped up and propped up this crisis with his own personal money and convinced many other bankers, institutional bankers, to step in and use their own money as well to basically stop the bleeding and get the market stabilized again. And so they did this. And it was within their best interest, because if they didn't, then all the banks would have failed and gone out of business, and the whole banking system would have crashed, and, you know, it gets worse and worse. So they basically solved the crisis and at least stopped it. But the public sentiment was not very good after this. So there's a lot of talk of regulation And having the government step in to prevent something like this from happening again. And this was what was going around at the time. We'll kick off this next section with a few more quotes. The first from Amshel Rothschild. He said, Give me control of a nation's money and I care not who makes the laws. The next is Thomas Jefferson. If the American people ever allow private banks to control the issuance of their currency, first by inflation and then by deflation, the banks and corporations that will grow up around them will deprive the people of all their property until their children will wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered. The final is from a later president, President Woodrow Wilson, the infamous. He said, I am a most unhappy man. I have unwittingly ruined my country. A great industrial nation is controlled by its system of credit. Our system of credit is concentrated. The growth of the nation, therefore, and all our activities are in the hands of a few men. No longer a government by free opinion, no longer a government by conviction and vote of the majority, but a government by the opinion and duress of a small group of dominant men." so now that the stage is set we have the infamous Jekyll Island meeting now what happened was you had some bankers that were tied to JP Morgan and company you had some that were tied to the Rockefellers and you had some other people there was um, Aldrich who was a congressman or senator I'm not really sure which I don't remember Um, but he was a government official and they secretly met at Jekyll Island Georgia so what they did is they took trains to this personal private island that was used as a hunting reserve and they didn't tell anybody where they were going they actually traveled under fake names and came in separately and all the staff on the island was sent home for the period of time that they would be having this meeting And it was very uh, sketchy, to say the least. But they did have this meeting, and what this was about was how are they going to still control everything with all this talk about regulation and government intervention and all this kind of stuff going on. So what they did is they got together these very powerful men and company representatives and government representatives, and they made a plan. And what that plan was, was that they were going to create this new national bank that was going to be owned and controlled by the Morgans and the Rockefellers and the big bankers. And what this new national bank would do would be to control monetary policy and to control regulation and things of this nature. And this way, the people in America would be satisfied because here is an independent body that is handling regulation and holding off another crisis and doing what they want them to do and so that's what they wanted to do so basically the bankers wanted to control regulation and printing money and monetary policy and the works so they had this plan and it ended up coming out and was introduced to the house to be voted on and this was it was called the aldrich plan and it was this plan that these bankers had made up at this meeting they had and that bill did not get passed that got shot down people saw right through it and said that you know basically we're giving all the control over to the banks and the whole point is to regulate the banks. so why the heck would we do this is ridiculous and It did not make it. Now, what then happened is very interesting. So you had a few other plans that were proposed, and then you had this revamped Aldrich plan that came out, and they slapped a much better-sounding title on it, and that is the Federal Reserve. And that sounded really good, federal. So it's government-controlled, reserve, so you actually have something backing up your banking system. Well, you know, this sounds great. Now, not only did it sound a lot better, um, the big bankers ended up coming out when this plan was announced, and they said that, no, we cannot pass this. We cannot do this. This It's going to be bad for business. It's going to be bad for the banks. This is a horrible plan. Do not vote for it. And so, of course, the people and the representatives said, well, if the banks hate it, then it's probably a pretty good plan. So, let's go ahead and pass this thing. And sure enough, they did. And that's what created the Federal Reserve. Now, again, this is pretty much the exact same plan that the bankers came up with at Jekyll Island and again, this is kind of sketchy to say the least, but, you know, they made it work and it ended up happening. So, what is the Federal Reserve? Well, what they did is they created this Federal Reserve banking system where you have 12 banks and they're regional banks from all around the country. You then also have a board of governors that is consisting of some government-appointed positions. Then you also have the Federal Open Market Committee, and that has a mixed population with some government and mostly private bankers. And so you have these 12 private banks, you have a board of governors that are government representatives, and then you have the open market committee that's a mix. And so you end up having a mix of government and private governance. Now, their goal is to maximize employment control monetary policy for a stable economy and again make sure that they don't run into another crisis again and that's how it was set up now this federal reserve would have stock and each one of these 12 banks would hold the stock for the federal reserve And it would have a set interest rate that it would definitely pay out, um, a dividend, that would get paid to these banks every year. So the banks would make a minimum 6% every year, and they basically owned the Federal Reserve. It was privately owned. And that's the system that was set up. Now... The Federal Reserve was essentially a central bank, but it was one that was more privately ran and mainly ran by the New York branch at the time. Now, for the first few years, uh, the Federal Reserve was mainly ran by these private bankers. They had most of the control. Again, the New York branch pretty much controlled everything, and everything was controlled out of that branch by those bankers. But over time, Power was taken away from the banking sector and given to the government side. So you had the Federal Reserve Board, and they had a chair position, and these were all appointed positions by the president. And they began to take over the role of leadership away from the New York branch that was the representative of the private bankers, in a sense. And so the federal reserve was kind of taken back by the private bankers to a degree at least but as i'm sure you recognized the system that it was created under is by far not a government entity however it was marketed as being a good thing that You know, we don't have the government that controls everything. We have this really cool mix of public-private partnership where they keep each other in check. And, you know, it's going to be great. This is the best way to do it. And so they did. Now, the goal of the Federal Reserve, like I had mentioned, was officially to maximize employment, stabilize prices, moderate long-term interest rates. Now, that's what they were trying to do. So, later on, there were a few expansions. Now, the first expansion was to supervise and regulate the banks. Then they needed to stabilize the financial system. Then they were expected to provide financial services to banks. The U.S. government also needed financial services, you had foreign official institutions that started getting involved, you had the duty to research the economy, and all these things were kind of added on to the, basically the job description for the Federal Reserve. Now, in 2008, they also came out with this wonderful idea where, okay, so let's back up just a minute here. Now, Banks, under a fractional reserve system even, they are required to carry some reserves of the currency, and the example I used was fairly accurate because the current rate is roughly 10%. Now, if a bank, especially one of these 12 large regional banks that's part of the Federal Reserve System, has to carry 10% of their money on reserve, then that's money that's kind of just sitting there. And so in 2008, they ended up passing a bill that allowed them to get paid 2.4% is what the rate is now, at least, on these reserves that were basically required to sit on their books to back up the money that was circulating in the system that they were then loaning out to other people and other banks. So... Not only are these banks in control, basically, of the Federal Reserve System and basically run the system and it's pyramided down through them, but now they're also getting paid for the reserves that they hold on hand, plus any extra they want to hold. So if they think that 2.4% is more than they're going to get in a maybe a volatile market, or they've already given loans out to the people that they think are good for it, and they don't want to go even more risky than, hey, let's just put more money in our Federal Reserve Bank, and we'll just make 2.4% interest on it. And hey, that's great. So they start getting paid for their reserves. Now, you might be thinking, why in the world does the government put up with this why would a government be okay with this kind of system this seems kind of screwed up where the private banks are in control of everything and they're regulating their own competition coming into the market they're printing their own money they're setting all the policy decisions like what like i know there's a slight check by these government appointed officials that sit on the board but a lot of this is just controlled by private bankers And, you know, why would a government be cool with this? Well, the reason is that the government also benefits because they have cheap and plentiful money at their disposal. So anytime they need money, the Federal Reserve basically can give it to them. So the Federal Reserve has the ability to buy and sell assets at any time they want. And they do this with new free printed money. So, how this works is that if the government needs more money, let's say America's, you know, in another war, we're always in some kind of war, and wars are expensive, so what they do is they tell the Federal Reserve, hey, we need some more money, and the Federal Reserve then prints, let's say, a billion dollars, and I use the term prints loosely, technically it's all digital and they're not actually printing any currency, but Basically, they create, let's say, a billion dollars and buy a billion dollars worth of bonds from the government. Now, the government now has a billion dollars. So, great, we've got money for our war, and the Federal Reserve now has a billion dollars worth of bonds on their balance sheet. And they didn't actually had to have to buy them with any real money. They just created the money. And so they basically just got free bonds and printed money for the government. So, you know, government's happy and the Federal Reserve is, of course, happy because then they can sell these bonds to other banks and make 100% profit on the money. So that's nice, too. Um, uh, to give an example of how the government benefits, um, I'll mention another policy, and that is that that any money that the Federal Reserve system makes goes to the Treasury Department. So all the money that's profit goes to the government. Now, as I mentioned, there is the six percent dividend that goes to all the banks, so the banks are making money no matter what, and that's guaranteed. And you also have the aspects of creating money and buying and selling assets on the open market and things like this that they're involved in. But overall at the end of the year, there's gonna be a profit or loss. And To give an example, in 2015, the Federal Reserve's net income was $100.2 billion. And out of that, the Treasury Department ended up getting $97.7 billion. That is billion with a B, as in boy. So the government made a lot of money in 2015, and that is... Kind of similar to most every year because, of course, under this system, the Federal Reserve, it's kind of hard for them not to make a whole lot of money. And so the government then is going to make a whole lot of money and have access to as much money as they want. So the government's really happy. And in exchange, the banks are really happy. They have control over monetary policy, they have control over, um, regulating banks which then they can basically institute regulations they're going to hurt the smaller competitors to them and so they went out that way too they control things like interest rates and They pyramid money so they can create money that goes down to these 12 regional banks and those 12 regional banks through the fractional reserve system and the way it works. They then pyramid that money down to the smaller banks. And so the ones at the top benefit the most because they get the money right at the beginning and they spend it all and loan it all out and multiply it and make a bunch of money. So this is the Federal Reserve System in a nutshell with the quickest summary I could possibly do. There is so much more involved here, but basically just wanted to lay out how the system works, how it came to be, and that sort of thing. Moving on to a little more about the uh, current state of, let's say, American monetary policy and such. Let's go back to World War II. So after World War II... You basically had um, a situation where there were many countries that were not doing so well. Their economies had really taken a hit from the war. They had a lot of destruction. They spent a lot of money. It was very expensive. And at that time, America was the strongest country, and the dollar was then the strongest currency. So what happened was the dollar became the world reserve currency. Now, you also had, if you've heard of Bretton Woods, this took place around here, and this is where you had the gold exchange standard that I mentioned earlier come into play, where at this point, other countries started backing up their currencies in dollars, and dollars were then used for trade all around the world, and you had 65% of dollars were held outside of the United States. So this is what developed after World War II. And one of the big advantages here is that America could now export their inflation. So let me do a brief primer on inflation. So at the beginning of this example, America has, let's say, $1 billion circulating in the economy. And what they then do is they basically create or print an extra $1 billion. So now there's $2 billion that are going to be floating around in the economy. Well, obviously, this extra $1 billion was not backed by anything. It didn't really come from anywhere. No one worked for it. It just kind of magically appeared. And so anytime money kind of magically appears into the economy, things start to be more expensive and money starts to be worth less. So if there were $1 billion bills going around and now all of a sudden there's $2 billion bills going around, each one of those dollar bills is going to be worth pretty much half as much as it was before because the amount of dollar bills just doubled. So what happens is that when the government prints this extra one billion billion, first it goes through maybe the big banks so probably federal reserve system and the 12 regional banks they get all this money and what the federal reserve can do is they can buy a bunch of assets on the open market so they can buy some stocks and buy you know whatever the heck they want to buy they're free to buy whatever they want and when they do They basically push up the price. And so when a lot of people are buying an asset, that asset becomes more expensive because there's higher demand and there is the same supply. And so the price can go up. They can charge more. And so this drives the price up on things like stocks and bonds and things of this nature. Well, the government also uses some of this extra billion dollars, and they're probably paying maybe defense contractors because, again, they're financing another war. It's what they always want to do. And so, this money goes to a defense contractor to purchase computers and missile guidance systems and weapons and all this kind of stuff. So, what happens is, again, the same thing. These items are bought in a much larger quantity than they were before, and as there's more demand for them, their prices go up, and this starts to filter through the economy. So, Then the defense contractors, they need supplies to make their weapons to sell to the government, and so they start buying more supplies, and the supplies start going up in price because there's more of a demand for them, and all of a sudden there's all this money that's coming out, and this money is demanding more and more goods, so the price of those goods go up and up. Same thing happens on the stocks that the Federal Reserve was buying with this brand new money. So the price of stocks is going up, and that money is filtering through and does the exact same thing. And so what happens is you end up with everything in the economy eventually is going to be priced higher than it was before, and this new billion dollars, it will eventually spread through the whole economy, but the people at the very beginning benefit the most. So the defense contractor and the federal reserve they were able to buy their goods at only a slightly inflated price so only a slightly higher price than it was before but as soon as they started doing that the prices went up and so everyone after them is having to pay higher and higher and higher prices and the further down the list it goes those people haven't even received this new money so the prices are going up but they don't have any more money And so you're stuck in this situation where we call it inflation, where your dollar is worth less than it was before. So there's your primer on inflation. I hope that made sense to some degree. Uh, But going back to the dollar being the world reserve currency after World War II, and I mentioned how they could then export their inflation. Now, how that works is that now... When the United States government prints money, there is a demand for this money by many countries all over the world. And so we can print money, we can sell it to these other countries and give it to these other countries, and then that money can filter through their economy or just sit on their books as reserves. And so you are able to export all those aspects of inflation instead of printing money and using it in your own economy and having crazy inflation in America. So as long as the dollar is the global reserve currency and they're able to export their inflation, they can print money and buy goods from other countries as well. So we can buy goods from China, and as we do, we'll drive up the price of those goods from China with this brand new printed money we just created And, you know, that affects their economy a lot more than it affects ours. It still will affect ours, but nowhere near as much. We're able to export the majority of our inflation overseas, and that's, you know, big benefit to America. Now, even with all this, we have some interesting aspects when we go back and look at what the goals of the Federal Reserve System were So, going back to that, the Federal Reserve, like we had said, their goal was to stabilize the market, keep prices down, uh, monitor inflation, long-term interest rates, things of this nature. Well, what has happened historically? Well, the value of the dollar has dropped over 90% since the Federal Reserve was established. Now... To me, if I bought a stock that was worth $100 and it dropped 90% in value, um, I, I wouldn't be very happy with how that business had handled their business and how my stock had performed. I would be very upset. However, somehow the Federal Reserve is still considered to do their job well, or at all even, even though... The value dropped 90%, and that's one of their main goals, is to keep the value of the dollar up. It just doesn't make much sense to me personally. But the next thing we'll look at is that they were supposed to stabilize the economy. So the whole point was to stop... A crisis from happening, and they figured that they could take out this boom-bust cycle where you had prices going way up, stock, stock markets going way up, everything's doing well, and then all of a sudden the market crashes and it goes way down, goes way too far down, and you know, it cycles over and over again. And so the Federal Reserve thought that they could take control of this and they could kind of cut off the tops and cut off the bottoms and basically make it a little more streamlined a little more stable well think back to 19 i think 13 was when the federal reserve was established and have we had any crazy crashes or downturns since then well you know maybe the great depression uh shortly after this uh financial crisis of 08 much later but there are many in between there Basically, when you actually look at the record, the Federal Reserve has not really done their job. Somehow they're still in business, and that's still the system we live under, but there you have it. That's the Federal Reserve in a nutshell. That is our modern monetary system that we live under and our banking system that we use. That's how your money goes through the system and is used by other people and that's why your money is worth less than it was yesterday and much less than it was 10 years ago and you know that's just the way it is so I will end there now I do want to mention that there will be an upcoming episode on Austrian economics versus Keynesian economics and We touched on some of the aspects of this. So the Austrians believe in the boom-bust cycle and that that is caused by interest rates and government interference, and I'll get into that in that episode, versus the Keynesian economics, which is more like central planning and more of this Fed policy mentality where you control monetary policy by the government and you can control the economy that way. And this is a huge debate that's going on Um, in that time period that we just covered as well as currently, um, the Austrians, you know, pretty much have always been the underdogs, but I want to get into that because that is very important and there's a lot to look into there, but it definitely cannot fit into an episode like this. So the next episode we are going to do will be on the more modern history of the education system and, What do we have now? How did we get it? Uh, Basically, we have moved uh, from the origins episode. We've gone from the beginnings of education to having the state start to take control. And so now we're going to look at what the state-run education system looks like, how it got the way it is, how it was formed, how it works, that kind of stuff to bring us up into modern day like we just did with money and banking, bringing us into what we have today and where did it come from? And, you know, maybe what are some of the problems there? There might be a few just to give you a hint. And so that's the plan. That's our next episode. I'll now mention how you can find out more about this podcast and these topics. So you can go to Twitter. We've been a little more active on Twitter lately, and that is at FoundationsPC you can also go to the website that is probably the best resource and that would be ourfoundations.podbean.com and that has things like an outline for the podcast and our plans and different episodes for the future and resources so different authors and different podcasts that cover these types of topics and things of that nature um, another resource is the Patreon page. So patreon.com slash ourfoundations. You can go there. The main point would be if you want to donate. So if you want to donate, help support the podcast. There's a few different perks you get there. You get some bonus episodes and things like that. And there's more content. Um, so you can check that out too. You can also email me anytime at ourfoundations@protonmail.com. at protonmail.com and I will get back to you within a reasonable amount of time and I am happy to debate things that you do not agree with or take compliments or criticisms. Whatever you have to dish out send it my way. If you have some requests for future episodes or topics you want covered a little more send them to me and I might be able to do that. The Patreon page is another place where you can give a lot of input and I can get back with you on that side as well. So I think that's everything we have. Um, All of that information should be in the show notes. You can click the links there. have links for all those different things I just mentioned. And hopefully you come back next time. Hear our next episode on the modern history of education. And that's it. Peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.